Chapter Thirty of Sylvia's Lovers. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Sylvia's Lovers by Elizabeth Gaskell. Chapter Thirty. Happy Days. And now Philip seemed as prosperous as his heart could desire. The business flourished, and money beyond his moderate wants came in. As for himself. He required very little. He had always looked forward to placing his idol in a befitting shrine, and means for this were now furnished to him. The dress, the comforts, the position he had desired for Sylvia were all hers. She did not need to do a stroke of household work if she preferred to sit in her parlor and sew up a seam. Indeed, Phoebe resented any interference in the domestic labor which she had performed so long that she looked upon the kitchen as a private empire of her own. Mrs. Hepburn, as Sylvia was now termed, had a good dark silk gown piece in her drawers, as well as the poor dove colored against the day when she chose to leave off mourning, and stuff for either gray or scarlet cloaks was hers at her bidding. What she cared for far more were the comforts with which it was in her power to surround her mother. In this Philip vied with her, for besides his old love and new pity for his Aunt Belle, he never forgot how she had welcomed him to Hatersbank and favoured his love to Sylvia, in the yearning days when he little hoped he should ever win his cousin to be his wife. But even if he had not had these grateful and affectionate feelings toward the poor woman, he would have done much for her if only to gain the sweet, rare smiles which his wife never bestowed upon him so freely as when she saw him attending to mother, for so both of them now called Belle. For her creature comforts, her silk gowns, and her humble luxury, Sylvia did not care. Philip was almost annoyed at the indifference she often manifested to all his efforts to surround her with such things. It was even a hardship to her to leave off her country dress, her uncovered hair, her linsey petticoat, and loose bedgown, and to don a stiff and stately gown for her morning dress. Sitting in the dark parlor at the back of the shop, and doing white work, was much more wearying to her than running out into the fields to bring up the cows, or spinning wool, or making up butter. She sometimes thought to herself that it was a strange kind of life, where there were no outdoor animals to look after. The ox and the ass had hitherto come into all her ideas of humanity, and her care and gentleness had made the dumb creatures round her father's home into mute friends with loving eyes, looking at her as if wistful to speak in words the grateful regard that she could read without the poor expression of language. She missed the free open air, the great dome of sky above the fields, she rebelled against the necessity of dressing, as she called it, to go out, although she acknowledged that it was necessary where the first step beyond the threshold must be into a populous street. It is possible that Philip was right at one time when he had thought to win her by material advantages, but the old vanities had been burnt out of her by the hot iron of acute suffering. A great deal of passionate feeling still existed, concealed and latent but at this period it appeared as though she were indifferent to most things, and had lost the power of either hoping or fearing much. She was stunned into a sort of temporary numbness on most points, those on which she was sensitive being such as referred to the injustice and oppression of her father's death, or anything that concerned her mother. She was quiet even to passiveness in all her dealings with Philip. He would have given not a little for some of the old bursts of impatience, the old pettishness, which, naughty as they were, had gone to form his idea of the former Sylvia. Once or twice he was almost vexed with her for her docility. 
He wanted her so much to have a will of her own, if only that he might know how to rouse her to pleasure by gratifying it. Indeed, he seldom fell asleep at nights without his last thoughts being devoted to some little plan for the morrow that he fancied she would like, and when he wakened in the early dawn, he looked to see if she were indeed sleeping by his side, or whether it was not all a dream that he called Sylvia wife. He was aware that her affection for him was not to be spoken of in the same way as his for her, but he found much happiness in only being allowed to love and cherish her, and with the patient perseverance that was one remarkable feature in his character, he went on striving to deepen and increase her love when most other men would have given up the endeavor, made themselves content with half a heart, and turned to some other object of attainment. All this time Philip was troubled by a dream that recurred whenever he was over-fatigued or otherwise not in perfect health. Over and over again in this first year of married life he dreamt this dream, perhaps as many as eight or nine times, and it never varied. It was always of Kinraid's return. Kinraid was full of life in Philip's dream, though in his waking hours he could and did convince himself by all the laws of probability that his rival was dead. He never remembered the exact sequence of events in that terrible dream after he had roused himself, with a fight and a struggle, from his feverish slumbers. He was generally sitting up in bed when he found himself conscious, his heart beating wildly, with a conviction of Kinraid's living presence somewhere near him in the darkness. Occasionally Sylvia was disturbed by his agitation, and would question him about his dreams, having, like most of her class at that time, great faith in their prophetic interpretation. But Philip never gave her any truth in his reply. After all, and though he did not acknowledge it even to himself, the long-desired happiness was not so delicious and perfect as he had anticipated. Many have felt the same in their first year of married life, but the faithful, patient nature that still works on, striving to gain love, and capable itself of steady love all the while, is a gift not given to all. For many weeks after their wedding, Kester never came near them. A chance word or two from Sylvia showed Philip that she had noticed this and regretted it, and accordingly he made it his business, at the next leisure opportunity, to go to Hayter's Bank, never saying a word to his wife of his purpose, and seek out Kester. All the whole place was altered. It was new whitewashed, new thatched, the patches of colour in the surrounding ground were changed with altered tillage, the great geraniums were gone from the window, and instead was a smart knitted blind. Children played before the house door, a dog lying on the step flew at Philip. All was so strange, that it was even the strangest thing of all for Kester to appear where everything else was so altered. Philip had to put up with a good deal of crabbed behaviour on the part of the latter, before he could induce Kester to promise to come down into the town and see Sylvia in her new home. Somehow the visit when paid was but a failure. At least it seemed so at the time, though probably it broke the ice of restraint which was forming over the familiar intercourse between Kester and Sylvia. The old servant was daunted by seeing Sylvia in a strange place, and stood, sleeking his hair down and furtively looking about him, instead of seating himself on the chair Sylvia had so eagerly brought forward for him. Then his sense of the estrangement caused by their new positions infected her, and she began to cry pitifully, saying, "'Oh, Kester, Kester, tell me about Hagersbank. Is it just as it used to be in Father's days?' "'Well, I cannot say as it is,' said Kester, thankful to have a subject started. "'They'n plowed up Toad Pasturefield, and are setting it for taters. They're not much for cattle, isn't Higgins's. They'll be for corn into next year, I reckon.' and they'll just have their pains for their payment, but they're all so pig-headed as folks for a distance. 
So they went on discoursing on Hatersbank and the old days, till Belle Robson, having finished her afternoon nap, came slowly downstairs to join them. And after that the conversation became so broken up, from the desire of the other two to attend and reply as best they could to her fragmentary and disjointed talk, that Kester took his leave before long, falling, as he did so, into the formal and unnaturally respectful manner which he had adopted on first coming in. But Sylvia ran after him and brought him back from the door. "'To think of thy going away, Kester, without either bit or drink. Nay, come back with thee, and taste wine and cake.' Kester stood at the door, half shy, half pleased, while Sylvia, in all the glow and hurry of a young housekeeper's hospitality, sought for the decanter of wine, and a wine-glass in the corner cupboard, and hastily cut an immense wedge of cake, which she crammed into his hand in spite of his remonstrances, and then she poured him out an overflowing glass of wine, which Kester would far rather have gone without, as he knew manners too well to suppose that he might taste it without having gone through the preliminary ceremony of wishing the donor health and happiness. He stood red and half-smiling, with his cake in one hand, his wine in the other, and then began, Long may ye live, happy may ye be, and blessed with a numerous progeny. There, that's poetry for you, as I learnt in my youth. But there's a deal to be said as cannot be put into poetry, and yet I cannot say it somehow. It did tax a parson to say, ah, as I've getten in my mind. It's like a heap of wood just after shearing time. It's worth a deal, but it takes a vast of combing and carding and spinning afore it can be made use on. If I were up to to use of words, I could say a mighty deal. But somehow I'm tongue-teed when I come to want my words most. So I'll only just make bold to say, as I think you've done pretty well for yourself, getting a house full of furniture, looking around him as he said this, and victual and clothing for taxing, belike and a home for to missus in her time o need and maybe not such a bad husband as i once thought yon man'd make i'm not above saying as he's maybe better nor i took him for so here's to ye both and wishing ye health and happiness ay and money to buy you another as country folks say having ended his oration much to his own satisfaction kester tossed off his glass of wine smacked his lips wiped his mouth with the back of his hand pocketed his cake, and made off. That night Sylvia spoke of his visit to her husband. Philip never said how he himself had brought it to pass, nor did he name the fact that he had heard the old man come in, just as he himself had intended going into the parlour for tea, but had kept away, as he thought Sylvia and Kester would most enjoy their interview undisturbed. And Sylvia felt as if her husband's silence was unsympathizing, and shut up the feelings that were just beginning to expand towards him. She sank again into the listless state of indifference, from which nothing but some reference to former days, or present consideration for her mother, could rouse her. Hester was almost surprised at Sylvia's evident liking for her. By slow degrees, Hester was learning to love the woman, whose position as Philip's wife she would have envied so keenly, had she not been so truly good and pious. But Sylvia seemed as though she had given Hester her whole affection all at once, Hester could not understand this, while she was touched and melted by the trust it implied. For one thing, Sylvia remembered and regretted her harsh treatment of Hester the rainy, stormy night on which the latter had come to Hatersbank to seek her and her mother and bring them into Monkshaven to see the imprisoned father and husband. Sylvia had been struck with Hester's patient endurance of her rudeness, 
a rudeness which she was conscious that she herself should have immediately and vehemently resented. Sylvia did not understand how a totally different character from hers might immediately forgive the anger she could not forget. And because Hester had been so meek at the time, Sylvia, who knew how passing and transitory was her own anger, thought that all was forgotten, while Hester believed that the words, which she herself could not have uttered except under deep provocation, meant much more than they did, and admired and wondered at Sylvia for having so entirely conquered her anger against her. Again, the two different women were divergently affected by the extreme fondness which Belle had shown towards Hester ever since Sylvia's wedding day. Sylvia, who had always received more love from others than she knew what to do with, had the most entire faith in her own supremacy in her mother's heart, though at times Hester would do certain things more to the poor old woman's satisfaction. Hester, who had craved for the affection which had been withheld from her, and had from that one circumstance become distrustful of her own power of inspiring regard, while she exaggerated the delight of being beloved, feared lest Sylvia should become jealous of her mother's open display of great attachment and occasional preference for Hester. But such a thought never entered Sylvia's mind. She was more thankful than she knew how to express towards any one who made her mother happy. As has already been said, the contributing to Bell Robson's pleasures earned Philip more of his wife's smiles than anything else, and Sylvia threw her whole heart into the words and caresses she lavished on Hester whenever poor Mrs. Robson spoke of the goodness and kindness of the latter. Hester attributed more virtue to these sweet words and deeds of gratitude than they deserved. They did not imply in Sylvia any victory over evil temptation, as they would have done in Hester. It seemed to be Sylvia's fate to captivate more people than she cared to like back again. She turned the heads of John and Jeremiah Foster, who could hardly congratulate Philip enough on his choice of a wife. They had been prepared to be critical on one who had interfered with their favorite project of a marriage between Philip and Hester, and though full of compassion for the cruelty of Daniel Robson's fate, they were too completely men of business not to have some apprehension that the connection of Philip Hepburn with the daughter of a man who was hanged might injure the shop over which both his and their name appeared. But all the possible proprieties demanded that they should pay attention to the bride of their former shopman and present successor, and the very first visitors whom Sylvia had received after her marriage had been John and Jeremiah Foster, in their Sabbath-day clothes. They found her in the parlor, so familiar to both of them, clear-starching her mother's caps, which had to be got up in some particular fashion, that Sylvia was afraid of dictating to Phoebe. She was a little disturbed at her visitors discovering her at this employment, but she was on her own ground, and that gave her self-possession, and she welcomed the two old men so sweetly and modestly, and looked so pretty and feminine, and besides so notable in her handiwork, that she conquered all their prejudices at one blow, and their first thought on leaving the shop was how to do her honor, by inviting her to a supper-party at Jeremiah Foster's house. Sylvia was dismayed when she was bidden to this wedding feast, and Philip had to use all his authority, though tenderly, to make her consent to go at all. She had been to merry country parties like the Cornies, and to bright haymaking romps in the open air, but never to a set stately party at a friend's house. She would fain have made attendance on her mother an excuse, but Philip knew he must not listen to any such plea, and applied to Hester in the dilemma, asking her to remain with Mrs. Robson while he and Sylvia went out visiting, and Hester had willingly, nay, eagerly consented, it was much more to her taste than going out. So Philip and Sylvia set out arm-in-arm arm down Bridge Street, across the bridge, and then clambered up the hill. 
On the way he gave her the directions she asked for about her behaviour as bride and most honoured guest, and altogether succeeded, against his intention and will, in frightening her so completely as to the grandeur and importance of the occasion, and the necessity of remembering certain set rules, and making certain set speeches, and attending to them when the right time came, that, if any one so naturally graceful could have been awkward, Sylvia would have been so that night. As it was, she sate, pale and weary-looking, on the very edge of her chair, she uttered the formal words which Philip had told her were appropriate to the occasion, and she heartily wished herself safe at home and in bed. Yet she left but one unanimous impression on the company when she went away, namely, that she was the prettiest and best-behaved woman they had ever seen, and that Philip Hepburn had done well in choosing her, Felon's daughter, though she might be. Both the hosts had followed her into the lobby to help Philip in cloaking her, and putting on her patents. They were full of old-fashioned compliments and good wishes. One speech of theirs came up to her memory in future years. "'Now, Sylvia Hepburn,' said Jeremiah, "'I've known thy husband long, and I don't say but what thou hast done well in choosing him. But if he ever neglects or ill-uses thee, come to me.' and I'll give him a sound lecture on his conduct. Mind, I'm thy friend from this day forwards, and ready to take thy part against him. Philip smiled as if the day would never come when he should neglect or ill-use his darling. Sylvia smiled a little, without much attending to or caring for the words that were detaining her. Tired as she was, John and Jeremiah chuckled over the joke, but the words came up again in after days, as words idly spoken sometimes do. Before the end of that first year, Philip had learnt to be jealous of his wife's new love for Hester. To the latter, Sylvia gave the free confidence on many things, which Philip fancied she withheld from him. A suspicion crossed his mind from time to time, that Sylvia might speak of her former lover to Hester. It would not be unnatural, he thought, if she did so, believing him to be dead, but the idea irritated him. He was entirely mistaken, however. Sylvia, with all her apparent frankness, kept her deep sorrows to herself. She never mentioned her father's name, though he was continually present to her mind. Nor did she speak of Kinraid to human being, though, for his sake, her voice softened when, by chance, she spoke to a passing sailor, and for his sake her eyes lingered on such men longer than on others, trying to discover in them something of the old familiar gait, and partly for his dead sake, and partly because of the freedom of the outlook and the freshness of the air, she was glad occasionally to escape from the comfortable imprisonment of her parlour and the close streets around the market-place and to mount the cliffs and sit on the turf gazing abroad over the wide still expanse of the open sea for at that height even breaking waves looked only like broken lines of white foam on the blue watery plain she did not want any companions on these rambles, which had somewhat of the delight of stolen pleasures, for all the other respectable matrons and town-dwellers whom she knew were content to have always a business object for their walk, or else to stop at home in their own households, and Sylvia was rather ashamed of her own yearnings for solitude and open air, and the sight and sound of the mother-like sea. She used to take off her hat, and sit there, her hands clasping her knees, the salt air lifting her bright curls, gazing at the distant horizon over the sea, in a sad dreaminess of thought. If she had been asked on what she meditated, she could not have told you. But by and by the time came when she was a prisoner in the house, a prisoner in her room, lying in bed, with a little baby by her side, her child, Philip's child. His pride, his delight, knew no bounds. This was a new fast tie between them, 
this would reconcile her to the kind of life that with all its respectability and comfort was so different from what she had lived before and which philip had often perceived that she felt to be dull and restraining he already began to trace in the little girl only a few days old the lovely curves that he knew so well by heart in the mother's face sylvia too pale still and weak was very happy yes really happy for the first time since her irrevocable marriage for its irrevocableness had weighed much upon her with a sense of dull hopelessness she felt all philip's kindness she was grateful to him for his tender regard towards her mother she was learning to love him as well as to like and respect him she did not know what else she could have done but marry so true a friend and she and her mother so friendless but at the same time it was like lead in her morning spirits when she awoke and remembered that the decision was made the deed was done the choice taken which comes to most people but once in their lives now the little baby came in upon this state of mind like a ray of sunlight into a gloomy room even her mother was rejoiced and proud even with her crazed brain and broken heart the sight of sweet peaceful infancy brought light to her all the old ways of holding a baby of hushing it to sleep of tenderly guarding its little limbs from injury came back like the habits of her youth to belle and she was never so happy or so easy in her mind or so sensible and connected in her ideas as when she had sylvia's baby in her arms it was a pretty sight to see however familiar to all of us such things may be the pale worn old woman in her quaint old-fashioned country dress holding the little infant on her knees looking at its open unspeculative eyes and talking the little language to it as though it could understand the father on his knees kept prisoner by a small small finger curled round his strong and sinewy one and gazing at the tiny creature with wondering idolatry the young mother fair and pale and smiling propped up on pillows in order that she too might see the wonderful babe it was astonishing how the doctor could come and go without being drawn into the admiring vortex and look at this baby just as if babies came into the world every day philip said sylvia one night as he sate as still as a mouse in her room imagining her to be asleep he was by her bedside in a moment i've been thinking what she's to be called isabella after mother and what will your mother's name margaret said he margaret isabella isabella margaret mother's called belle she might be called bella i could a wished her to be called after thee she made a little impatient movement nay sylvia's not a lucky name best be called after thy mother and mine and i want for to ask hester to be godmother anything thou likes sweetheart shall we call her rose after hester rose no no said sylvia she mun be called after my mother or thine or both i should like her to be called bella after mother because she's so fond of baby anything to please thee darling don't say that as if it didn't signify there's a deal in having a pretty name said sylvia a little annoyed i ha always hated being called sylvia it were after father's mother sylvia steele i never thought any name in all the world so sweet and pretty as sylvia said philip fondly but she was too much absorbed in her own thoughts to notice either his manner or his words. There, you'll not mind if it is Bella, because you see my mother is alive to be pleased by its being named after her, and Hester may be godmother, and I'll have to dove-coloured silk as you gave me afore we were married, made up into a cloak for it to go to church in. I got it for thee, said Philip, a little disappointed. It'll be too good for the baby. Eh, but I'm so careless. I should be spilling something on it. 
but if thou got it for me i cannot find it in my heart for to wear it on baby and i'll have it made into a christening gown for myself but i'll never feel at my ease in it for fear of spoiling it well and if thou does spoil it love i'll get thee another i make account of riches only for thee that i may be able to get thee whatever thou's a fancy for for either thyself or thy mother she lifted her pale face from her pillow and put up her lips to kiss him for these words perhaps on that day philip reached the zenith of his life's happiness End of chapter 30